You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Uh, these, these are the now famous words of one of my personal heroes. Uh, he's been called the founder of modern missions, a man named Hudson Taylor. Now, just by a show of hands, I'm curious, how many of you have at least heard of Hudson Taylor? Great, yeah. The pastor's hand went straight up, right? Um, I na- we named our firstborn son after uh, Hudson Taylor. His name is Hudson. That's how that works. Um, he, w- he was a pioneer missionary to China in the 1800s. He founded an organization called China Inland Mission. It still exists in a different iteration today as OMF. And there were really, if you, if you look at the uh, qualities of Hudson Taylor that stood out, there's, there's really two things. Um, the, the first is he was one of the first modern Western missionaries to adapt to the cultural customs of the people he was trying to reach instead of bringing the gospel and his cultural customs to a nation. Okay? So instead of bringing China the gospel and English culture and dress and way of speaking, which was pretty common at the time for missionaries, Taylor said, that doesn't seem right or biblical. And instead, why don't I embrace those cultural customs, become one of the people so that I can give them the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the things he's famous for. And second, and most relevant to our text this morning, is that quote I began with. Hudson Taylor exhibited this radical dependence upon God as he went about the mission. He really believed that he could depend on it, that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Now, did he have inadequacies? Of course. He was, he was a human. Did he have failures? Yes, he did. Did he experience hardships? Yeah, he lost his wife. He lost his children due to sickness. He himself endured sickness, beatings, jail time, lack of funds, and so on. But his son, who who helped write his biography, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret is what it's called, um, he, he described this major characteristic of Hudson Taylor's life as this, quote, the simple, profound secret of drawing for every need, temporal or spiritual, upon the fathomless wealth of Christ. That's what marked Hudson Taylor's life. And by God's grace, China Inland Mission, in that first iteration, they brought more than 800 missionaries to the country. They trained indigenous missionaries. They founded 125 schools. They saw some 18,000 people come to Christ. And how did they do that? Well, because God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And, and that phrase, that quote from Hudson Taylor, I think is a, is a wonderful way to sum up Exodus 4 for us this morning, our, our passage. This is, this is a lesson that God is teaching Moses as he's calling him to go back to Egypt and deliver the people 
from slavery. Now, by way of reminder, because we took a break last week when Dan was here opening up Hebrews chapter 2, but by way of reminder where we are, we're in the middle of this this narrative. In chapter 3, we saw God appear to Moses through the burning bush. Moses is in Midian. He's been there about 40 years. That's where he fled to after killing the Egyptian in chapter 2. And he's since started a family. He's become a shepherd. And God, the great I Am, calls him to go back to lead the people in deliverance out of slavery. Now, we've already talked about how Moses already had some sense that that was his purpose in life. We've seen it from his birth, right? So how did Moses respond to this call? He said, yes, I'm excited. I can't wait to go. No, that's not what he said. No, we're we're dropping back into this story where we're seeing that Moses responded to that call with, with fear and doubt. Chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses, Moses has a, a mission God has called him to, but he's having a really hard time depending upon the Lord. All he can see is the impossibilities in his own inadequacies. He's struggling. He's, he's doubting. I think we can relate to this so well, can't we? We too, church, we have a a mission that God has called us to. The church, by that I mean Seven Mile Road, but also the Big C Church throughout the world. God has called us to bear witness to Jesus in a world that denies Him. We're, We're called to display the gospel through holy living. We're called to declare the gospel in our speaking that others may be delivered out of slavery of sin and death. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, when we stop and think about this task, it's so easy to become overwhelmed by the seeming impossibilities of it, right? We see all of the hardships when we look around us. Or when we look inward, we see our own inadequacies and we say, there's no way I can be a part of that. We get discouraged in the calling. And maybe we're tempted to, to retreat from, from Egypt and, and rest in the comforts of Midian. It's much easier to just sort of hang out in our Christian circles instead of taking this mission seriously going out in the world. Or maybe we don't retreat from Egypt. Maybe it's just easier to assimilate to Egypt. We get so comfortable in the world around us that we lose our sense of mission and distinctness as the people of God. So what God is doing for Moses here is he is patiently, lovingly, and firmly encouraging him in the, miss, the mission. And we, we need to learn this with Moses, to trust the Lord as we go about our calling as God's people to display and declare the message of redemption, the message of deliverance to the world around us. We need to learn that as we go about this mission, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. That's chapter 4. Now, we'll see this in four parts this morning. Four things, if you're taking notes. First, we'll see God's power for the mission. Second, we'll see God's sovereignty over the mission. Third, we'll see our obedience in the mission. And fourth and finally, we'll see the purpose of the mission. So number one, God's power for mission. Verse one, three again. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Pay attention to those two words, believe and listen. 
See them all throughout this chapter. They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now again, Moses has just heard from the mouth of God that the Israelites will be delivered. God will accomplish this, but he's doubting this promise. And so he responds by saying, listen, God, they're not going to listen to me. They're they're not going to believe me. He's already told God in chapter 3, he's already in a sense said, I'm inadequate and I'm unable. And now this response, what he's saying is, not only that, God, I'm also going to be ineffective. That's Moses' response to the calling. And he's likely thinking about his past, what happened in chapter 2 all those years ago when he intervened and killed the Egyptian who was beating the fellow Israelite. Remember what happens? The next day he goes out, he sees two Israelites fighting, and he tries to say, hey, hey, guys, we're on the same team. And what, what, are they, what does this Israelite say to him? Who made you prince over us? And then he flees. So he's dealt with rejection before. And he's likely thinking of his past, and he's saying, ah, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to believe and listen. I think we've been there, haven't we? Have you ever felt like your past has barred you from accomplishing God's purposes? Maybe it's the past, the guilt of past sins, or it's the pain of, of sufferings that you feel have maybe tainted you for some reason, and you think, ah, God, I really, I hear you. I know you're, you're calling me to this mission to invest in others, to make disciples, to take the gospel to this world around me, but can I really be of any use? I mean, no, no one's going to believe someone like me. Now, I think it's important to note here that this, this is not a humble response from Moses. It might seem that way, and there, there is. Humility is good. Right? Write that down. Um, there's a sense in which we should all say in humility, Lord, who are we to be used by you? Right? There's, there's a way to say that in humility. But remember, God has just clearly spoken and given him the promise that these people will be delivered, that deliverance is going to come. So this isn't humility for Moses. This is doubting. And why is he doubting? He's doubting because he does the same thing you and I do all the time. He's looking inward at his own inadequacies instead of upward at the power of God. That's why Moses is doubting. His his vision is skewed here. So he says, God, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe this story about the bush, about you talking to me. They're going to think I'm crazy. So he doubts. And here's what's so encouraging to me throughout this passage, chapter 3 as well. The good news is that God meets Moses on his level and responds with compassion. Read on in verse 2. The Lord said to him, he didn't say to him, what are you thinking? Didn't you hear what I just said? No. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. 
And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back in the cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. Verse 9, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. You hear what God's doing in compassion. They're not going to believe or listen to me, and God says three times, I'm going to give you these signs so that they believe and listen, believe and listen, believe and listen. Now, He gives these three signs, and he's essentially saying, hey, Moses, I know you feel like you're going to be ineffective, but that's because you're not considering my power. You're looking at yourself. My power is going to go before you in this mission, not yours. It's not about you. Now, what what, signs point to something, right? They're always pointing to something else. So what, what are these three signs pointing to? You have a snake, you have a leprous hand, and then you have this sort of foreshadowing of the sign that we'll see again later, the, the river turning into blood, the Nile turning into blood. Those three things are really significant. All of them are, are pointing to the religious, they're referring to the religious and spiritual life of Egypt. So... Take Pharaoh, uh, take this, this, this snake, right? Pastor Clint showed us earlier on in the series. The Pharaoh would wear this, this hat that had a snake, a cobra on it. Right? Also, there's this false god, Ray, R-E, that this refers to. So this is representing this idea of a snake in, in Egypt. A cobra represented both human leadership, Pharaoh, but also the false gods of the Egyptians. And what does Moses do when this staff throws down? He turns, and first he runs, which by the way, that's what you should do when you see a, a snake. And then God says, no, 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 go pick it up. And he, I didn't know this because I don't touch snakes because I'm an intelligent human. But apparently you don't pick up a snake by the tail because it could coil around and bite you. But God says, pick it up by the tail. It's not going to harm you. And then immediately it changes back into the staff. So, so the message from God is this. Moses, this puny Pharaoh and all of his false gods are no match for my power. No match. Through my power, you're going to subdue these powers. Have no fear. He goes on and gives him another sign. What about this leprous hand? Well, leprosy in ancient times, not just Egypt, but everywhere, was seen as a curse. It was something that was... Um, it was seen as, it was incurable, it was highly contagious. If you had it, you were set apart, you were cursed, and it was essentially a skin disease that was like walking death. Yet God shows Moses, I am the one who can afflict and heal as I see fit. I can do it in an instant. I'm the one who has power over life or death. Have no fear. Then he says if they don't believe that, he refers to this sign of the Nile turning into blood. Well, the Nile River was the center of Egypt's existence. All of their agricultural sustenance, all of the, the life of Egypt was, is owed to this river. And, and not only that, it was full of fish and would attract wildlife. It was a food source. The Egyptians would praise the river. They'd call it the father of life and the mother of all. 
scholar Alex Miltier says here, to threaten and destroy the Nile was to destroy Egypt itself. And this too the Lord showed he could do. What is God saying through these signs to Moses? He's saying, it's my powerful work, not yours. That's what's going to go before you in the mission. Now Moses hears all of this, but he's still not convinced. And if you're tempted to go, man, what a hard head. Think of the, the own times in your own life, think of in mine, where I'm so slow to believe the word of God. Verse 10, but Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So what's Moses' response now? Even though he's seen all those signs, he essentially says, God, I, I can't talk good. Like I just, That's the problem. And to this, again, God answers him. He doesn't, God doesn't have to. He answers him and said, let me remind you, Moses, I'm the creator of mouths. I'm the creator God. I'm going to be with you. You don't need to worry about that. He's still being patient with Moses. Then Moses finally says, in what seems to be exasperation, he says, just send someone else. Finally, he's like, okay, I've got no more excuses. I just don't want to go. I don't want to go. And, Moses, and God's anger is rightly kindled against Moses. But notice this. Right after the verse tells us God's anger is kindled against him, we see that God is still patient and kind with Moses because he says, okay, Aaron will go with you. I will provide someone else. This is his kindness and mercy. He's removing all of the excuses. This is what he does for us too, by the way. All of our excuses for not trusting him. He takes our sight off of ourself and our own inadequacy so we look upward and see his power. He exposes our weakness so that we can rely not on ourselves, but on God. That's what he's doing to Moses here. We'll see in a moment that Moses is slowly starting to see this. Now let's just apply this to Christ's church Today, we live in a world that is opposed to God and His gospel. It's always been that way. We live in a culture that's inundated with false gods. Gods of sex and self and money and power, all those things. And on top of this, we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. He would love nothing more. Satan would love nothing more than to keep us in the comforts of Midian. Away from the mission of bringing the message of redemption to the world around us. So wrapped up in our own weaknesses and our own insecurities that we never engage in God's mission. But friends, these things, all of these things, are no match for the power of the one true God. 
God promises us that his power goes before us in the mission. Jesus says, I will build my church. And he uses weak people like us to bring the gospel to the world around us. He says, depend on it. It's my power that goes before you in this mission. We have a mission to carry out. We have a gospel to proclaim. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul says elsewhere, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation. The power for the mission, both for Moses and for you and I, church, is not It's not you. It's not your eloquence. It's not your skill. It's not your track record. The power for the mission is from God. Fear not. Engage in the mission with that truth at the forefront of your mind and heart. But God goes on. Number two, not only do we see the power for the mission, we also see God's sovereignty over the mission. Now we know Moses is... We don't hear a direct response between uh, these verses, but we know he goes back, verse 18. So he's starting to believe what God is saying. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses listens to God. He prepares this return to Egypt. And notice what God is doing here. He's reassuring him of, yes, he has a responsibility to carry out, but he reassures him that is God's sovereignty over the mission, particularly the heart of Pharaoh. God's sovereign over this deliverance. And, And sovereignty simply means God is in control. He tells us here that he's sovereign over, God is sovereign over the hearts of mankind. Look at verse 21 again. Let's read it slowly. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. That's Moses' job. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. As we read on, we know that Pharaoh is also hardening his heart. But God's ultimate sovereignty is working to display His glory in this deliverance. God is sovereign over the hearts of mankind. Moses has a responsibility to speak. God's the one who's going to deal with Pharaoh. It's not Moses' job to try and manufacture the outcome. He's simply supposed to follow God's commands. Relying on the power of God. And he's supposed to trust the Lord with the results. This may be 
the single most comforting truth, both for Moses in his mission and for you and I in the mission that God's called us to. That God is sovereign over human hearts. He is sovereign over the salvation of every single individual. As I reflected on this this past week, I thought of friends and family members, as I'm sure those of you who, who walked with Christ for a while, you, you have these similar stories. People who I have longed to see come to Christ. You shared the gospel with them. You prayed for them. And, and then you just wonder, man, is, is this, could, this, is, could this even happen? Because you, you don't see any change, right? You see such a hardness to, to God and His grace. And the temptation, when that happens, is to be so discouraged. And not only does it happen on a personal level, but even as we think on the, maybe the church in our region, our area, our culture, we can be so discouraged when it seems like people are so hardened to God and His grace. Or I think of times when I've been silent knowing I should speak up and share Christ because I'm afraid I'm going to get a negative response. And I'm, I'm confronted with this question. It's a question each of us should ask. Do I believe the biblical truth that God is sovereign over the salvation of others? Moses had to answer that question time and time again. Do, read, read, when we, we'll, we'll see it through the rest of the book. And in numbers, God, do I believe that you are sovereign over this people? Sometimes it was because they're driving me crazy, right? Their hearts seem so hard. What about us? Do we believe in God's sovereignty? If so, here's what will happen. If we truly believe it and appropriate it to our lives, we will share the good news of the gospel with those we love. We will pray for them. And we will trust God with the results. Paul tells us in Romans 9, which uses Pharaoh as a case study for God's sovereignty over human hearts. He says, Romans 9, 15, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. You say, well, how does he decide who? I don't know. I'm not God. God's sovereign over human hearts. Romans 9, 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is sovereign. Jesus tells this parable, this kingdom parable in Mark chapter 4, verse 26, he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter the seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Like a, like a sower sows the seed and walks away. Moses' job is to go, staff in hand, God's power, to speak, to display the greatness of God, and then trust that God's going to deliver in His sovereignty. Christian, our responsibility is to go, to sow the seed, and then go to sleep. It's the sovereign God who will give growth. Think of how freeing this is for us, church, in the, in the work of mission. Some have said, historically, there's been this big argument, we're not going to get into it now, but has said that believing in God's sovereignty over salvation actually keeps you from mission, keeps you from being passionate about going with the message of deliverance to others. 
And the fear is that someone will say, well, God's sovereign, so really who cares about what we do? We don't, we don't need to go share the gospel. We don't need to go tell people that they can be delivered from the slavery of sin because God is sovereign. Well, friends, that only happens if someone's content with disobeying the direct command of God. So we hold those things in tension. God uses means, the means to to draw people um, out of slavery of sin through deliverance through Christ is people, the church, proclaiming the gospel. That's the means that he uses. So we don't, we, we obey when he tells us to go, yet we also trust this clear biblical truth that God is totally sovereign. And so this idea that believing in God's total sovereignty keeps you from mission, it's not the biblical picture and it's not throughout church history. There would be no China Inland Mission if that were the case. Through the Bible and throughout church history, those who believe in God's sovereignty over salvation, God's sovereignty over the mission, they have been the most passionate missionaries. Why? Here's why. Because they can endure all sorts of hardship, rejection, slowness, seeming failure. Why? Because they're confident that God has a people whom he will save as he sees fit. So when it gets hard, they don't pack up and go home because God is sovereign. I think of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18. He's in Corinth. He's so discouraged in the mission. He's opposed and reviled for preaching Christ. And God appears to him in a vision In Acts 18, verse 9, he says to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. What's God telling Paul? He's saying, listen, there are people in this city, you don't know who they are, but they are mine. I've chosen them. They haven't heard the gospel yet. They haven't been redeemed yet. But through the proclamation of Christ, Paul, through your work, I will save them. So Paul, you know what he did after that moment? He wanted to to call it in. He stayed for a year and a half, and God planted a church. And we read about that church in two books in the New Testament. Church, God has people in your neighborhood, people in your families, people in this city that he has sovereignly chosen to save. And that reality should embolden us to go with the message of redemption. Just as it should embolden Moses to say, this seems like an impossible mission. I have my doubts. I'm struggling. I sense my own weakness. But God is sovereign. He said He'll deliver. So I'll believe in His sovereignty. He's sovereign over the mission. Now as we move on through the text, we also see number three, our obedience in the mission. So God's power, number one. Number two, God's sovereignty. Number three, our obedience in the mission. So Moses and his family, they're heading back to Egypt, and we pick up in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint, that's his wife, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now when I found out this is the text um, I was preaching, I asked Clint if he did this on purpose, if this was some sort of joke. Um, <laughs> this is strange if you're not familiar if you are familiar with the Bible this is a strange passage 
There's a lot of unknowns on what's happening here. If, if you aren't, you're like, what is going on right now, right? And that's completely understandable. I want to keep this as simple as possible. We can sum up the meaning of these three verses right here with this one word, obedience. Obedience. Here's, here's what I mean by that. Moses was an Israelite, which means he was a, a part of the covenant people of God. Which means he knew the outward symbol to mark him and his family as a part of God's covenant people was circumcision. Where do we see that? Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, that's Israel, after you throughout their generations. That includes Moses and his children. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay? Very clear. Moses would have known this. God established this sign of circumcision to set apart God's people in the Old Covenant. As a side note, the sign of the New Covenant for us today is baptism. But Moses has neglected to obey this clear teaching from God's word with his son. He doesn't give his son the sign of the covenant. So he's going upon this holy mission. And God, who's holy, stands opposed, ready to justly execute him for his disobedience. That's what's happening here. And notice this. Before, when Moses was wrestling with his own weakness and doubts, his own insecurities, his speech impediment, all of those things. God is patient and merciful with him. Even when his anger is kindled, he says, I'm still going to lovingly and patiently give you your brother Aaron. But now, this is not about weakness. Now, when Moses is in blatant disobedience, God is ready to righteously judge. You see, friends, God will work with your weakness, but He will not stand for blatant, unrepentant disobedience and sin. You see the difference there? Weaknesses are these painful but morally neutral aspects of our humanity. Things like physical frailty, chronic ailments, Maybe a below average intellect, learning disabilities, speech impediments. It could be things like effects of suffering, whether it's trauma or emotional brokenness. Those are weaknesses that God can and does redeem. And he, he redeems them so much so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12.9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Those are our weaknesses, but we cannot boast in sin and disobedience. We can't boast in lust or anger or impatience or, or selfish ambition or gluttony or dishonesty or disobedience, whatever it may be. Those are the things we are to mortify or to kill our sin because God is holy. It's as if God is saying to Moses in this situation, Moses, holiness matters. I'll work with your speech impediment. I'll even work with your insecurities, but I will not bless your unrepentant disobedience. You're my representative. You must be holy. 
And friends, do you, do you know what does the most damage to the mission of the church in the world today? It is those who claim Christ with their lips, but deny Christ by lives of disobedience. The message that sends is that Jesus isn't real. These people are hypocrites. Friends, holiness matters in the mission. Remember what we've titled this, this Exodus series, Deliverance and Devotion. Our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our kids, they don't, they don't just need to hear us declare the message of deliverance. They certainly need that, but they also need to see us display a life of holy devotion to God, which is the natural outworking of that deliverance. Lives of obedience. So God stands opposed to Moses here in his disobedience. But here is, here's the grace we see. What's the answer to Moses' disobedience here? Notice this. For Moses and for us, it's the shed blood of another on our behalf. Zipporah, Moses' godly wife, who, by the way, was not an Israelite. She's married into this family. She intervenes, and she obeys God on behalf of Moses. She is a picture of Christ here, so that Moses' life is spared. Lutheran pastor Donovan Riley writes this, The blood of the circumcision was a sign of God's promise to his people. It was a sign of God's promise to Abraham. It was a sign for the sons of Israel, one which they would soon paint on their doorposts on the eve of Exodus. It was a sign that pointed to the true bridegroom of blood who was to come, who would liberate the whole world from sin, death, and damnation. So, so don't hear this call to obedience and think, okay, well now I must try harder so that God will accept me. No, instead, we are to face our sins, our disobedience, right in the face, and then run to Jesus who shed His blood for us. As we sing often, on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on Him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Here in the death of Christ, I obey. Here in the death of Christ, I pursue a holy life for His glory. I obey His commands and display His holiness to a watching world. Church, our obedience matters for the mission and the power to obey is found in Jesus. Number four, finally, what's the purpose of this mission? We've seen the power of God for the mission, the sovereignty of God, the mission, the, our obedience in the mission, and number four, the purpose of the mission. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke as the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, they had seen their affliction, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. 
So how, how, how do the enslaved people of God respond when they hear this news of the coming deliverance? They believe and listen. Wasn't that Moses' fear? God answers that desire of his. And they believe unto worship. They worship God. Remember, Moses wrote this. He wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. I, I can imagine just reflecting back on this and writing, I don't, I don't know if, how he did it, but and just thinking, man, God, I was so worried that they wouldn't believe or, or listen. And you are so good and powerful and sovereign, God. They listened. Now, as we read on through Exodus, we'll see more hardships. We'll see the struggle to believe and, and listen. We'll see people turning away from worship. But what happened, happens is God's people, they believe and they're delivered and they worship God. That's the purpose of the mission. Belief unto worship, for God is worthy. Even when they leave Egypt, not just them, but some Egyptians, they're converted, they join them because they believe in Yahweh and they worship God. Church family, that's why we go with the gospel. Belief unto the worship of God, our rescuer and redeemer. So I'd ask you a really important question to ask, some homework for you. Ask, who do I know that needs to believe and worship Jesus? Who's in my life right now that I need to pray for, that I need to consider how to bring the gospel to them? Is not God worthy of their worship? So worthy of being worshipped by others that we should lay aside our pride, our insecurities, our unbelief, and by the power of our sovereign God, tell them about Jesus. I want to end by reading you this longer quote from John Piper. It's in a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. He says this as we close. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. But worship is also the fuel for missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I'll be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. Church, we are delivered. We're to call others to be delivered unto devotion. We're to go on the mission so that God would receive worship. So let's cherish him. Let's, let's depend on Him as we go about our mission. God's powerful and sovereign work done in God's way of obedience and holiness will never lack God's supply for the worship of His name and for the good of those around us.